Alright guys, welcome back to another Rogue Capitalist. It's been two weeks since I recorded a brand new episode and I'm back from Japan. Needless to say, I had a really good time in Japan. It's a country in which I've visited over the course of my life, almost every year. And so this trip for me, which I just came back from, was the longest I've been away from Japan, which is four long years. It's funny how these four long years has eclipsed almost every single moment of my life. I've been through two cycles already, which is the first one being my employment as a software engineer in the military industrial complex, followed by two years as an entrepreneur in the food business, taking over my family's business. And this trip marks the continuation of the journey which I have handpicked for myself from a very young age. And so each time I visit Japan, something new always happens. I still remember when I was relatively young, I would say in my early 20s, when I finished my mandatory military service, I went to Japan on my own for the very first time. Usually I would go to Japan with my family or with my friends, but for this time, I went alone. It was about two months, three months before I started college and I wanted to have my own experience visiting a country which I am very frequent with. And I do recommend people travel on their own because when you go on yourself, you realize that you have a lot of time to explore to soak in and to enrich yourself with experiences and fill yourself with thoughts that you would never imagine you would ever have. Because the wonderful thing about solitude is that it opens your mind to horizons you have never once imagined could ever be possible. Because we now live in an era where we have technology surrounding us everywhere. We have a technology that invades and is very intrusive into the way in which we live our lives. If you read my book, Road Capitalist, I highly recommend you guys check it out. I did go into detail how technology changes the way we live our lives. A long time ago, humans used to gaze upon the stars. They used to take direction from the universe. And perhaps they will live a life based on what the heavens or the stars above have shown in order for them to be guided towards a certain destination in their life. And so on my various trips alone overseas, I've done this more than 10 times already, ever since my ever since I was a kid. I got a chance to experience countries on my own. I would take long walks, clock in steps in the hundred thousand digit range. The most I ever walked was five hundred thousand steps in South Korea over the course of five days, which was astronomically crazy. And one more thing that I managed to accomplish on that South Korea trip was I did not have any pocket mobile Wi-Fi, whatever you want to call it. And let me remind you guys, this was easily seven, eight, almost 10 years ago when I did that trip to Korea. At the time, I would say that technology hasn't progressed to the point where if you don't have a phone, you cannot interact in society. I still carried Korean won and I paid everything with cash. And that was possibly one of the best decisions I ever made. Because at that time, I had a card. It was a link to my father's bank account. But I didn't use it. Because of course, I didn't want to... Actually, to be honest, especially when you are younger, 10, 20 years ago, especially as a youth, you wouldn't really want to use the card. Because to you, cash is still very important. Because your parents will most likely give you pocket money 
or you would go to the money changer and exchange your country's currency for that country's for the designated designated country that you'll be visiting. You'll be changing your money, getting your, your yen, your won, your Swiss franc, your euro dollar, your euro or whatever you want to call it, British pound. Yeah. Or dirhams, if you guys living in Dubai right now, you most likely carry cash around you because you do understand that in almost every country that you visit, cash is still king. In Singapore, that is a different case. Like I mentioned in previous videos, I did say that Singapore has progressed to the point where barely anyone carries cash anymore. And this is the step towards central bank digital currency, which is really a reality in Singapore with pay now, pay la. If you want to find out more, I highly suggest you check out my other videos, which I will put in the link below. I did highlight how central bank digital currencies will start as some QR code payment system and then slowly integrates and fully functions as the central bank's currency. But when you think about it, right, CBDC is not much different from credit card transactions or any different from using PayPal. Because ultimately, what is a central bank digital currency? It is a gateway. It is a payment processing alternative or method, a brand new method. So that means that currently with the SWIFT payment system, we are using Visa, MasterCard, etc. The payment processes, right? Credit cards, debit cards. What makes you think that an era where Visa, MasterCard are no longer needed? Is it going to be any different from a central bank being the middleman for transactions. Think about it this way. Visa and MasterCard is going to probably be the system where the central bank digital currency is going to copy from. So that means that regardless of whether the CBDC works with the Federal Reserve being the intermediary or whether the current system where we have with payment processors has Visa, MasterCard, American Express, JCB, what else? Just to name a few, as the payment processor. What difference does it make? And that's why when I look at pundits sharing news online, talking about how central bank digital currencies are infringing on our, what you call it, liberty and our freedoms, I can't help but wonder. You notice that there were a lot of things popping up lately, especially with COVID-19, with the pandemic, with the public health bureaucracies that popped out, with different countries having different way of governance, telling them, oh, you can wear masks, you can't wear masks, you can't go out the street, you can't, whatever, you can't fly, you can't visit your grandparents, you can't visit your parents in the hospital. Yes, there's two sides to it. The first side is that it's meant to protect the public. And another side, which is the pro-freedom voice, what are they saying? They're saying that it's infringing on your personal liberties. But as some guy once said, the smart man is able to take the view from both sides. If I'm not mistaken, it's Mark Twain, right? The ability to look at a coin from both sides and stand on the edge. You notice one thing about capitalists or people who are entrepreneurial. It doesn't matter what policies are in place. They will always find a way to win. So that means that regardless of whether they're central bank digital currencies or whether BRICS is going to overtake the US dollar, which is near impossible because US dollar is still the one that's being traded almost every day. And if not, we have other forms of system, Bitcoin, Lightning Network, various forms of cryptocurrencies which have proven themselves to be rather useful but has become more of a speculative thing that people gamble on for, for making quick money. Exactly. It doesn't really matter what system's in place. Because winners will always find a way to win. Whereas, quote unquote, losers, you'll find a way to complain and whine and all that. And I can't help but chuckle whenever I see there's always a group, right? The pro freedom boys. They look like some outback guy wearing a, what you call that, a flannel and telling you how the government is infringing on the rights. Yes, it might be that way. But some people love big government. 
while some people love a more libertarian approach. There is no difference between libertarian approach and someone who does big government, who is basically a socialist, as you call it. As I get older, I realize there is no perfect system. There is no perfect government. And there is no perfect systems of governance. I spend a lot of my time hanging out with businessmen, entrepreneurs. I've been to many countries over the world, dealt with many people. I played professional card games, got to see the absolute low lives and the upper class in society. All I can tell you is that you can't really change anything. The only thing that can change, as cliche as it sounds, is your perspective. So as much as I am talking about Japan in this video, the key point I want you to get across is if you have the chance to travel on your own, go and do it. Because oftentimes, if you go with friends, you're often going to be influenced by what they have in mind. Because as you know, if you travel in a group, there's always one guy that's making a decision and everyone else has to follow. Because if you have everybody having their own different plan, what's going to happen? It's going to be chaos. Nothing's going to get done. There's a reason why there's always going to be different roles where you travel. Like for example, if I travel with my friends, which is my neighbors, I only travel with my neighbors. I don't go with other people. We already have designated roles. We have one guy which is in charge of finances. We have one guy which is in charge of itinerary. And there's one guy who's like the rear guard, the guy that's assuring that we are not getting followed, we are not getting stalked, we are not going to get ambushed in the random street, who is basically our Google Maps, our navigator. So that's the importance of traveling, which is that if you're going to travel in a group, make sure that everybody has a designated role. And then, when you travel on your own, you'll be able to go to many places which you otherwise wouldn't be able to. Because whenever you travel in a group, there's always this feeling where everybody has to conform. Everybody has to follow a certain set path. And not everybody is the same. I understand that. Not everybody is able to go to two to three destinations in a single day. Because let's say if you're traveling on a very tight schedule, for most people they are. For me, I can take as long as I want. As long as I want to take a trip, I can go for a month, two months, three months. I can even go overseas for an entire year. Most people don't have the luxury such as me, to travel for as long as I want. I remember when I was on my third week in Japan, I have some friends asking, wow, your trip is so long. And I said, is it that long? I wanted to stay even longer. I wanted to stay for a month, two months, three months. The initial plan was to go for three months. And then I realized that it's over exceeding my renovation date. And then I go two months. Then I realized that was a little bit too long. And then I decided one month. And then when he reached the one month, I thought to myself, should I really go for a month? Because it might be a little bit too long. So I decided to cut back down to three weeks. And so I went for a three weeks trip instead. And over the course of the three weeks, I spent two weeks on my own and one week where I reunited with my family in Tokyo, Japan. Tokyo, as you know, is one of the greatest metropolis, greatest cities in the world I've ever visited. Nothing comes close to Singapore at first place. And nothing comes close to New York. But I think that Tokyo has definitely exceeded New York as it is. I might be wrong because I've not been to New York in 10 years. New York to me is still the mecca of capitalism or the mecca of business success. Because when you look at New York, what do you see? You see hustle the bustle. You see people hustling. You see street side vendors. You see brand new small businesses popping up. You see various forms of gastronomic experiences that one can have if you go to New York. I remember as a child, I've always been fascinated whenever my father would bring me to New York for his business trips. And each time I go there, it's so competitive. The businesses there are so competitive, especially in the food industry. There's always a brand new restaurant popping up. And it's rare for a guy to survive as a restaurateur for more than five years. And that's why I always looked at New York as the pinnacle of capitalism. Whereas it's so different in Singapore, right? It's so different when it comes to business in Singapore. It is that it is always one person who is politically connected and is able to go very far. Whereas in New York, the free market is the thing that makes it prosper. But I can't say the same for New York anymore. New York has definitely changed. 
I've read it online, but I've not been there to verify it myself. Will I ever go to the US again? I think that might be a possibility this year when I go for another business trip because there's a chance I might be going to South America. And next, the big one, Tokyo. Tokyo has definitely changed a lot in the past four years, which I'll get into later on. And so for my two weeks when I was in Japan, I really got the chance to rework the novel that I'm writing. Because like you know, like I've been mentioning quite a few times, I've actually been working on a fiction novel series. I don't want to get into, much, get into too much detail. The people who know about it already know about it. I'm in contact with publishers and all that. Still currently working on it. I, I'm no rush of publishing it. To me, taking over businesses and ensuring it runs smooth, hiring people and make sure, make sure that the thing is smooth is more important to me than writing the book. The book is on the side. If it goes big, congratulations, then I can take it further. If not, it's just going to be me running businesses. That's about it. But when I spend the two weeks abroad, especially when you're surrounded by fresh air, fresh food that you can easily get from the mountains, from the seaside, and having immaculate service by the Japanese. If you have not been to Japan, I can tell you that the Japanese are truly the best when it comes to serving top-notch food with top-notch service, which still is extremely mind-boggling because I do pay service charge in Singapore because you do know in Singapore, you don't get the food, you don't get the price of everything outright. You get the net, you get the not net, it's not even net price. You get the price of the food, which is like $10 and then they slap on a service charge and then they slap on the goods and services tax, which is the GST. And so easily your $10 meal can become $11.80, an additional dollar for service charge and additional 80 cents for the GST. So that's how Singapore structures it. So every meal that you're eating is 18% less of what it's supposed to pay. In Japan, everything is really, they put a price there, tax included, etc. There is no service charge because they've really factored in the service into it. And Japanese service is at least a hundred times better than Singapore service. And Japanese service is almost as good as New York service. I remember when I go to restaurants in New York, the service is top-notch. I'm talking about super high level. That's the best thing I like about America is New York City. Especially when you go to high-level restaurants, it's super, super top-notch. Everything is perfect. Where in Singapore, when it comes to service, yes, you do get good service. If you, Especially if you go to five-star restaurants or Michelin-star restaurants, you'll get good service. But if you go to a mid-tier restaurant in Singapore, you wouldn't get that experience. You wouldn't get the five-star experience. You go to a random shop in New York, you go to a random shop in Japan, the service is immaculate, it's perfect. Not as perfect as a five-star restaurant or Michelin-style, Michelin-guide restaurant, but it's pretty much there. It's pretty damn good. That's the thing I realized about most countries that try to replicate another, such as how Singapore tries to replicate Switzerland or replicate New York City or replicate Tokyo or Hong Kong. It's just the culture is here is incredibly different. In this country, you can work a part-time job and yet still make more than someone working in Vietnam, Malaysia, or Thailand. That's the thing about it. A non-graduate working in a food and beverage restaurant as a manager can easily make up to $3,000, which is pretty damn good. $3,000 Singapore dollars, which is much higher than Malaysia's graduates, which are making $1,000, $1,500 Singapore dollars. It's totally night and day. But then again, you have to compare cost of living and all that. So when I spent my time in the outskirts, I had incredibly fresh food. And let's talk about the environment, right? So I've been to Tohoku, which is the eastern part of Japan. To me, it looks like the northern part, but apparently northern part is uh, Hokkaido. But I've been to Hokkaido during this trip as well. So the one thing I noticed about <clears throat> the outskirts, especially when it comes to Japan, is that the people there are lights out after 6 p.m. So it's so different from cities such as Tokyo or Japan, where no Tokyo or Singapore, where life still goes on even to the early hours of the day until like 4 or 5 a.m. where people are still clubbing, having fun. I've been I went to Aomori and I was very shocked to see restaurants closing at 7 p.m. sharp on the spot. 
like except for yakuniku yakiniku which is uh barbecue you can sell barbecue and stuff you know silver pan that you think of meat and barbecue apart from that most shops are closed by seven shopping malls are closed by 9 p.m with most of the food stalls already selling out their leftovers by eight and by the time 7 p.m reaches the grocery stores might be the only thing left open and they close at like 8 p.m or even 9 p.m there's nobody on the streets this is an agricultural town famous for its apples and its seafood so I went around at night and I walked around. Not many shops open. People were most likely home with their family. And so this is a very big contrast towards the city life. You know, In a city life, what do you have? You probably have people at night going out, drinking, partying, meeting new people, all that. It's very vibrant. It's the kind of culture that young people nowadays enjoy. Very few people like myself Enjoy solitude or silence. So just being completely away from the madness of the crowd. So when I went to Aomori and had a chance to soak in the local atmosphere, most of my days end at around 7-8pm. That's when I knew that everything was closed very early. For example, if I go to a restaurant and I look at the sign, it says closed at 6pm. And then I was, in my mind, I was thinking, what the? That means they're only open from 10 a.m. all the way to 6. In some cases, some shops are only open from 1 p.m. all the way to 6. And that sort of boggles my mind. And that's when I realized, after spending some time in Tohoku, is that life there is incredibly slow. It's very slow-paced. People are just living life on their own term. And no one really bothers much about the hustle culture that you see in city life. Because when you look at city life, right, what is city life? I finally got the answer to it. It is the hive mind smart city endgame that the powers that be want people to enjoy. Because when you live in a city, right, you constantly find yourself surrounded by the same people doing the exact same thing and everybody just following suit. There is not much individuality. There's not much personal space for you to roam about and develop your own sense of self. So when you're in the city, what is the end game? It is to be better than the next person next to you. Because there's really nothing else for you to do. There is no time that you spend in nature walking about in your own thoughts. There is no time that you spend eating fresh food and actually having your own backyard garden to picking your own stuff. There is no time for you to go hiking in the mountains or going to the lake to breathe in the fresh air. There is no time for you to think about other leisurely activities because life in the city with your sky-high rental, with your food, it's going to cost so much just because you want to live in an area where everything is handed to you because you are able to afford it with the fiat dollars that you have in yourself. So as a city, city dweller myself, I realized I didn't really enjoy that much of a city life. Maybe when I was younger, I do go out until very late. But until I turn, after I finished my mandatory military service, my life sort of changed. I didn't really enjoy going out that much. I didn't really enjoy staying up late that much. It started when I started going to bed at like 11pm, which at the time to me was very early. And I'll get up at 7am, which at the time to me was very early. Because back then I used to sleep at like 3-4am and I'll wake up at like 10am the next day. It's crazy how life has changed over the past few years. So in a city life, you are incentivized to do that because everybody around you is doing that. And the infrastructure around you also benefits you to wake up late and to sleep late because there's so much activities you can do. There are people also doing the exact same thing. There are activities, there's entertainment, there's smartphones, which definitely everybody's awake because everybody is on Facebook at the time and now there's TikTok, there's Instagram. You need a certain need fulfilled 
oh, there's someone willing to do it for you. If you get what I mean. Whereas in the outskirts, with nothing available, people are at home by 7pm. In fact, most people knock off from work at 5pm. Because on one particular day, as I was making my way back, I took the bus back. Walk, I wanted to try out a restaurant which was serving very delicious Hakodate scallops prepared in various ways. I saw my first rush hour. And when I mean rush hour, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't Singapore level bad where people were like scrambling out of the MRT system going back home. It wasn't as bad as watching Tokyo 6pm where everybody ended work and the entire train stations are filled with people. It wasn't as bad as New York subway in the morning and at night. It was as though I was finally seeing people for the first time in a week. These people were walking slowly to the train station about to take the train back home at 5pm. And by 6pm, after I finished my meal, as I stepped out, the whole place was empty. I'm not even kidding you. There was nobody walking around. Barely anyone. There were no buses, there were no taxis. Most of the shops were already about to close because their last order was like 6.30 and they closed at 7. And I scratched my head thinking, where am I going to go next? And so I made my way to a factory, which is Apple factory. It is the flagship uh, tourism hub, I would call it, of F&B hub of Aomori, which opens until 8pm, which is, <laughs> in Aomori terms, very late already. So I went there, had a very nice cider. And realized that people there are mainly buying stuff to bring back home to cook for their family. Because they sell different type of stuff there. They sell seafood, apples, etc. And I do notice one thing about, especially in the outskirts of Japan, is that life is so peaceful and slow. And I was curious, is wages truly that low in the outskirts of Japan? And so I made a search. And I realized there wasn't really much difference from a guy living in the outskirts of Japan compared to Tokyo or Osaka, which are the very populated areas of Japan. So that begs the question, why do people enjoy city life that much? That's when I realized it's mainly because of the opportunities that one can get in a city. But to live in a city, to embrace the culture there, to soak in everything that a city has by trading away your sanity, is it truly worth it? I believe so. Because Singapore is one of those cities where you can still get solitude if you live in a very nice zip code. You live somewhere far away. Not trying to toot my horn and say I live in a nice zip code. I do live in a very nice zip code, which is very quiet. There's so much people around. But there's one thing I realize when it comes to money or when it comes to wealth or when it comes to material gains is that the best use of money is to buy silence. And that's what I did with my trip, which I came back a day ago, is that I spent my money buying silence in the outskirts of Japan, which nobody goes. And trust me, I don't think that most people would even want to fathom going outskirts. People super love cities. They hate traveling outskirts. Even if they do, it's probably for a day only. And so with the silence board, I started to observe people to write down my thoughts to write down stuff for my book, to write down stuff, how to manage businesses. And I realized that businesses in the outskirts, where the way they are run, because I have a friend there who, who runs a business, it's so different. It's not about hustle culture, about making tons of money. That's the byproduct of running a good business and being a good owner of a business, the head honcho to your employees. Whereas you look at hustle culture or you look at businesses in cities. What's it about? It's about dollar and cents. Whereas in outskirts or people doing agricultural or doing industrials or doing the kind of businesses that actually matter, it's like a family. They're running it like a family. The main guy is the leader who tells people what to do, who expects things from them and leads by example. Whereas you look at cities, what's the business for? 
especially those make money online, those AI boys, if you don't use AI, you're left behind kind of boys. What is the business to them? It's about hyperscaling with fake money created by their own system. And then creating courses on YouTube, telling you how to be rich and telling you to you should employ digital marketing and manipulate the way people live their lives. It's so different, right? It seems as though people in the cities have changed the way entrepreneurship has become. It's no longer about providing value. It's all about cloud. It's all about social media. It's all about portraying yourself as an omnipotent being standing at the at Mount Olympus or something like that. And it's truly sad, right? Especially in the old days. Entrepreneurs in the past were all about industrials, about pushing society forward. We have now reached a point where the Federal Reserve has raised interest rate to the point where many banks, many businesses are about to implode. I believe that hell on earth is going to be seen next year, not this year, it's too soon. Next year, you see hell on earth when everything falls apart. We're finally going to see the unraveling of the Western monetary policies. We're going to see the unraveling of the world. But does it really impact people living in the outskirts, people living or having businesses in the real world of things that truly make the world move, such as oil and gas, such as mining, such as agriculture, such as manufacturing, such as food production, such as the farm business? Does it really matter to them? It doesn't. So that's the big thing about technology and all that. If really technology is meant to improve our lives, then why are things getting astronomically more pricey? Why is the value of the dollar dropping so much compared to in the past where there wasn't that much technology? Things were relatively affordable. People could work a full-time job and feed a family of five and have their wife stay at home and raise the kids. But now you can't have that. Whereas in the outskirts of Japan, somebody still can. So that begs me a question, right? What is the magic of the outskirts? And I realized is that the people there are very bound towards nature. The people there are still in tune with the cosmic alignment of the universe, as, as much as cliche as it sounds. And one particular example of how people are bound to the universe, as I would say, is that there was one particular trip I took towards Lake Towada. Possibly the most beautiful lake I've seen in my life. It was so peaceful, so quiet, so marvelous. And the journey towards Lake Towada took me through the extremities of nature. Seeing the green trees of spring, it took me all the way up to the summit of the mountain before going back down on the other side. So going up to the mountain, I was surrounded by ice caps and snowy landscapes. And as I reached at the, to the summit, and the bus went down the other side, I went through winding woods of several forests, cedar trees, which had the my ice really melted, and eventually reached the other side towards the lake. And from the lake, one can actually carry on the bus directly to the lake, but I decided not to. I decided to stop at one of the points and carried on a hike, a three-hour hike from the midpoint to the lake. And of course, I was greeted with beautiful scenes of nature, far more beautiful than anything I've ever seen in my life. It was so marvelous to see nature as it is. And then as I made my way towards the lake, I saw a very funny sign, which I fortunately did not capture in picture. It was a sign that said, please do not drive your electronic vehicles up this mountain. There will not be any charging stations and there are no future plans for them to be installed here. And so when I saw that sign, 
I chuckled to myself. It was very, very, very funny. It was comical to the point where I didn't laugh out loud, but I chuckled to myself. It was honestly quite funny. Because electronic vehicles, as much as they sound great on paper, it sounds as though while you're saving the earth, you're making the world a better place. What is it really? It's just another form of transportation. But is it feasible for electronic vehicle for you to go outskirts? Probably not. Because electronic vehicles are only meant for one thing. In a smart grid, in a smart city. Where in the future, there's going to be autonomous vehicles. It's going to be guided by AI. And it's going to bring you where you're supposed to go. And in the and in the outskirts, in the mountains, in Lake Towada, in the very beautiful aspect of nature, in the grand scheme of things, things that are unreal are not wanted in the landscape of things that are real. So that's one thing that has dawned upon me, is that try driving an electronic vehicle to the mountain, and when it runs out of energy, what are you going to do? You're going to get stranded. So what's the point of a transportation vehicle? that does not serve its intended outcome, which is to transport you from A to B, and instead, <laughs> can only bring you towards somewhere within a 15-minute city. Doesn't make sense, right? And that's why it boggles me. How is a person going to survive in the world with an electronic vehicle? when it only functions within a 15-minute time span. It doesn't make sense. Because trust me, electronic vehicles are only going to be as good as the amount of charging stations or the efficiencies of a smart city with IoT sensors integrated everywhere and drones to monitor the situation. Because trust me, in the outskirts, there's no way they're going to integrate it because nobody's going to live there unless you are incredibly wealthy. You own, a, you own an onsen resort there, or you own a mansion there, far away from the madness of the NPCs living in the smart cities and their electronic vehicles. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? You be a judge. But from what I've seen, with the locals who live in the mountains, with the sign they put up, I bet that these guys, even though they might not be PhDs or master's degrees or somebody part of the Green New Deal, whatever you want to call it, or part of Singapore's Go Green Initiative, they do possess wisdom and knowledge that the academically gifted people who love their EVs do not possess, which is street smarts. And that begs the thing, right? I love the outskirts so much that I remember four years ago when I went to Hakone, which is another beautiful part of Japan, except that it gotten a little bit more touristy now, I told myself that I wanted to experience this once more. And I'm glad I did. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago. It really broadened me, my, my thinking. And with the EV sign that I saw, it's really the kind of thing which enriches me. And it made me realize that the Japanese people, despite them living in the outskirts, some of them living in the outskirts, or I would say majority of them living in the outskirts, they are not as stupid as what people think. What? An agriculture guy does not know much about reality. Well, he does. He, he monitors the cycles in reality and knows how much crop yield he's going to have because he's been doing it for monkey years. His next generation will know and his next next generation will know. And he'll carry on for eternity. And there's also the last point I want to mention about life in the outskirts is that obesity doesn't exist. Is it because of the food they eat and the lifestyle they have? I don't know. But I do know one thing is that people living in the outskirts, they have a very big emphasis on community and sports. Because on one particular trip, as I made my way from Aomori to Akita, I took the Limited Express train, very beautiful train by the way, got to see many different landscapes as the train went past. I noticed the entire carriage was filled halfway when a sports team got onto the train and made their way back to whichever city that they're from. And that begs the question, right? I rarely see this happening, especially during a long weekend, during Gono Week, 
And I do notice a lot of people are wearing track suits running around, especially the track and field team. I see a lot of Tohoku students or youths running around in their track suits. They're part of the track and field team. And I see a lot of basketball players. I see a lot of soccer players as well. And so that means that a lot of these people living in the outskirts of Japan or maybe outskirts of other parts of the world, they participate in a lot of sports and they have a very big emphasis on team sports, teamwork and community, which is something which city dwellers do have unless they're in the sports team. Other than that, what do people do? Go to the gym, yoga, etc. So there's a very big difference between people who live in the outskirts and those who live in the city. And so we will talk about the meat and the potatoes Tokyo, after I go for a short toilet break and have some water. And I'm back. So Tokyo definitely changed a lot since the last time I was there four years ago. It still remains a city that inspires me. Having been through every phase of my life, in Tokyo, from an adolescent, to a child, to a teenager, to a young adult, and now to a adult. It's a sort of country where one can go to to find inspiration. When I mean inspiration, is that for a city like Tokyo, even though it's the capital city, or not say the capital city, the main business hub of, of Japan, it does have certain things that it does better than every other city that I've been to. Is that they manage to preserve the old and the new together. Like I do know a certain dictator from the Third Reich always like to say that the old and the new cannot be mixed together. But Tokyo has a good mix of tradition, and progressivism, which is odd. Because the, the one big thing that captured my attention was the rise of the transgender movement, the LGBT crowd. For a country as conservative as Tokyo or like Japan, I did not expect this movement to permeate into this part of society. I'm not saying it's a good or a bad thing, but it's just that for Japan, a country as conservative as Japan to have such a movement, it really is a sign of things to come. Because in Singapore, we have this red dot movement or this LGBT movement that many youths are a part of. They always want to give power to the minority or power to that. But one very important thing that I want to get across, the reason the LGBT rise in Tokyo and in Singapore and many other cities, is that can you guys spot the similarity? I bet you can. Because one thing I noticed is that it's always the city that permeates or pushes certain agendas. Because like I mentioned in the earlier part of this, today's podcast, is that in cities... Because people have no time to be left alone, away from smart devices, from their computer, from their work, from people surrounded with them until the early more early times of the morning where they are forced to, you know, drink and then wake up very early to go to work. Their whole life is a system that the city wants to keep it moving. It's the city dream that most people have. So that means that a lot of this culture that cities have is like an echo chamber. Because you are you are not given the opportunity to actually think for yourself. Instead, you are surrounded by advertisements, by billboards, by posters, by all sorts of things around you that make you become influenced or coerced to think a certain way. That's why I say that LGBT or whatever you want to call it, like transgender movement, if you think about it, it's like a marketing campaign. Technically, technically it's a marketing campaign. It's not a good or a bad thing. To me, it doesn't really bother about me that much. I don't even bother about it. But the thing is that I want you guys, broke capitalists, to listen to this. You guys who want to understand how things actually move. You start to realize that cities nowadays are not much different. 
like when I went to Seoul, South Korea, there wasn't much difference between Seoul and Singapore at all, apart from the quality of food and the, and the kind of food being served. Other than that, there's not much difference. Okay, other than palaces and temples. Yeah, that's about it, right? That's the only big difference. Tokyo as well. Tokyo and Seoul. What's the big difference? Food, right? The food is very different. Palaces and castles, I think both of them have similar structures. And so, in cities, what do you have? You see big corporations, you, big, you see big, massive towers in the business districts, in Marunouchi, in Tokyo Station, you see tons of it. Nihon Bashi, you see it. You go to Seoul, what do you see? You see tons of buildings, tons of all that. You go to Singapore, you go to Boat Key, you go to Downtown Station, you see huge buildings. And one thing is in common, corporations. So when you think about it, all these movements that you see, like the climate change, the LGBT, the transgender, you see with the feminism movement, with the all that kind of very pervasive stuff that are being pushed in the woke culture that the hills have. What is the one thing they have in common? Corporations in cities. You get what I mean? So it doesn't matter which part of the world you're in. If you're living in a city, you're bound to see stuff like this happening. Whereas if you move outskirts, if you move to a place where there's not much people around, you don't see stuff like that around. Because the people there are more community-driven. They care more about the people around them. They care more about their family, their neighbor, their neighborhood, their entire state. And they all work together to make things move forward. Whereas in cities, what is it like? It's a corporation. Everyone's working for a corporation. They compare each other based on the, how big their prison cell condominium complex looks like. They compare what car they're driving, whereas their big honcho is driving a Crown or an Lexus, staying somewhere in the outskirts, away from Tokyo. Barely even goes to work. He's, at, he's probably at the golf course. So you get what I mean, right? Is that all this culture thing in cities compared to the outskirts is based on corporations pushing a certain agenda forward. So if you truly want to escape the madness of the crowd, you can live in cities, but you must find a way to live in the outskirts as well. Because you do understand that in the outskirts, there isn't really that much opportunity, such as starting new businesses, etc. Unless you want to do something industrial, then maybe outskirts is for you. But if you're still in the make money online crowd, you have to live in the city. You live in the outskirts, there's a chance that your internet might not work. Because let's be honest, when I was using my internet, it didn't really function as well in the outskirts. It did have to restart to find a connection here and there often, which is something that most make money online boys cannot afford to have. And that's the thing, right? Especially when living in cities and outskirts. In the cities, you're controlled by corporations. They're pushing certain agendas. People have to work nonstop. They're surrounded by billboards, stuff that influence the way they think. The youths have their phones glued to them. They do not know what to do. They don't spend time in nature. They spend all their time on TikTok, on Instagram, on SNS, which is social networking service. They like to call it SNS for some apparent reason. And the biggest one, how to top it off today's episode, is none other than the social media hive mind. Nowadays, in a particular episode that I recorded probably a few weeks ago, I mentioned how people don't really plan the itinerary or they don't really know where to go when it comes to vacations or when it comes to traveling abroad. Most people will only follow one particular set trip, which is to follow what the influencer has planned for their trip. They don't make their own itinerary. They always rely on someone else to tell them what to do. It's very simple, right? When you look at people nowadays, they would rather work a job and be told what to do than to find a way to make life better for themselves. They would, they would rather go be a slave to someone than to be an apprentice, go to trade school, or be a mentee to someone running a business and eventually taking over his business and making it better. People don't think that way anymore. People want fast. They want instant gratification. They want that six-figure paycheck just by being a yes-man. They want that seven-figure bonus just by creating a startup that doesn't make money and they can sell back their shares and then appear on Forbes Under 30 telling you to start a climate change startup out of nowhere, right? It's, it's so ridiculous the way that the world has changed. People want a fast way to money, but there is no fast way. The quicker way you earn your money, the faster you lose it. I know it because I went through that cycle once. Anything that comes easy goes away easy as well. 
That's why you see people who work corporate jobs. They can't hold on to their wealth. They start a small business, they lose it all. It's common. It's, it's the kind of thing that permeates in society. It's like a wealth transfer schemes. The guy that owns the real estate, that leases you out the, the apartment for you to run a small business. He's making money because he knows the game. He's really been through so many cycles. He has seen the ups and downs. The quickest way to wealth is also the fastest way to lose it. It's the same when it comes to planning your travel itinerary. You look at the people traveling. They take their plan from online. They follow some influencer, they follow it. In fact, nowadays, people are using ChatGPT to write your travel itinerary. They don't even want to come up with their own plan. And that's scary, right? Nowadays, people don't want to think, even for their own leisure. Yeah, even for their own leisure, they don't want to take the time to plan the trip. All they want is copy online, take from someone and do it. It's the same as the way they live their life. Corporate job, work until they die, have children, tell their children to live the exact same life with them. And that's about it. And it's scary, right? Even when it comes to traveling, people copy the same thing. And this is so common. The last time I went to Kyoto, it was so quiet. But now when I look at Instagram, I type Japan. Or when I go to Google search, I type Japan. What's the first thing that is recommended? Go to Kyoto, go to Osaka, go to Tokyo. That's about it. That's that's probably the, the itinerary that everyone follows. And it's mind-boggling. No one actually thinks of other places to go. They just want to go to where everyone goes. And we all know that all oh, this road leads to hell. The road to hell is very good intentions. And very soon, every human is going to live inside a pod in the metaverse. Because it's the cool thing, right? Knowing to leave your house, put on your goggles, you can go overseas. The drone will send you food, send you your scheduled mandatory uh, medical procedures. And you're able to live a life without questioning much. And that's the end game. And if you want to find out ways in which you can build wealth, safeguard your liberties, check out my book, Broke Capitalist. In that book, I go very in detail how the future will be and how you can better prepare yourself for it. And that's all I have for today's episode. And I'll see you guys on the next one. Broke Capitalist, signing out.